Ride With Us, presented by Ace, the American Coaster Enthusiasts. Welcome to Ride With Us, presented by the American Coaster Enthusiasts, a group of super fans with a mission to appreciate, promote, and preserve roller coasters around the globe. Around the globe. It's time to keep your hands and feet inside the podcast at all times. Here's your hosts, Clint Novak and Chris Roberry. Hey, what is going on, everyone? Clint Novak here. And Chris Roberry. We are in the heat of the summer. But Clint, everything's starting to slowly open up. It's starting to feel a little bit normal now. It's hot out there. <laughs> it is. Boy, is it ever hot out here. <laughs> yes, uh, we missed spring coasters. We went straight into sweaty summer coaster season. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little hot out there. But uh, we got a great show. Uh, so looking forward to this. We're going to be recapping CoasterCon at Home, which happened uh, uh, last, well, um, last month, two months ago. Really? It's been yeah, that it's long. Been almost two months. It's it, been we, that we, crazy. We, we have been exhausted from CoasterCon at home that we totally missed our July and went straight into August. That's what happened. Yeah, how right? is that? Like, CoasterCon is already exhausting in person. I can't believe that virtual CoasterCon was, but boy, my goodness, it was. Wiped us out. Mm-hmm. We're also going to learn about the history of Indiana Beach as they reopen from the ashes, which is also really great to hear. And one of my favorite industry professionals is going to be on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Owens, the vice president of marketing and public relations at Dollywood, is going to be on. You know, I recently uh, did a little thing for Amusement Today called the Two Minute Drill, where they featured Mr. Clint Novak, a Funland professional. Uh, and uh, I said uh, they asked a question, who would you want to go road trip? with and Pete was one of the three people who would be in the car so I said if I'm road tripping I'm going to fill the car up so I actually I selected three people me being the fourth uh, you know and and Pete would be one of those people so yeah he's an awesome guy and it's a wonderful interview with a lot of great insight into Dollywood it's incredible history and uh, where they might be heading so stay tuned all right but first it's time to get our ace event rundown Now, as we said before, as some parks begin to reopen, there might be a temptation to do a large ACE event at one of your local parks. But with capacity restrictions and ever-changing restrictions, it might be pretty difficult to hold an event, and it could actually end up hurting the very parks that we want to help support, especially in these difficult times. So, while we can't be together in person, several regions are holding recurring virtual events. That includes the ACE SoCal Trivia Night, the ACE Mid-Atlantic Meetup, and there are some small ACE regional events available. So no matter what you're doing, whether it be online or maybe just looking back at old photos, when you post things, be sure to use the hashtag RideWithAce and share your moments. Together, we're going to get through this. And for the latest updates on regional and national events through the end of 2020 and beyond, keep checking out aceonline.org as well as our official national and regional social media pages because that's where you're going to get the latest information. And uh, you usually uh, catch me and Chris crashing the Mid-Atlantic meetups because uh, that's the way we do things here at the Ace Podcast. Yes, we just <laughs> crash things. That's all we do. Well, I'm not really crashing because I'm part of the Mid-Atlantic. You, sir, are not. But uh, for some reason, uh, wherever I go, you have to go. So you're crashing. We're just one big Ace family, my friend. What can I say? <laughs> 
You know, Chris, there is one park I have not had a chance to visit, and really it was not looking good at the beginning of this year that I would ever get to visit this park again. But now Indiana Beach has somehow risen from the ashes and is now reopened. And I'm telling you, I got to find a way to get out to this park this summer because I don't want to miss a chance to go to Indiana Beach. No, it looks like a, just a cute little family-owned park that has really grown over the decades and has really cemented itself as a piece of that area's culture, honestly. Yes, and uh, because of that, there was a lot of uh, local outcry uh, to save Indiana Beach, and now it's under new ownership and a new leadership team, and uh, we got a great segment. That's right. Podcast team member Bryant Yeager is filling us in on the ups and downs of this small but very popular and very well-known amusement resort. This is Bryant from the Ace South Central Region bringing you another historical look at the theme park industry. I hope everyone is staying safe as we continue to navigate the world pandemic. However, I am glad many of us will be able to visit our favorite theme parks in the near future as they begin to reopen. This month we will take a look at Indiana Beach in Monticello, Indiana. While we and several other countries around the world have had a tumultuous time with COVID-19, Indiana Beach has had its own struggles to remain existent. Indiana Beach holds a special place in my heart as it was the first theme park that ultimately pushed me from fearing roller coasters to absolutely loving them. Founded in 1926 by Earl Spackman, Indiana Beach, then known as Ideal Beach, opened as a bathhouse that featured 10 rowboats and a refreshment stand. In 1927, the following year, Ideal Beach would go on to add rental cottages, a hotel, and a toboggan water slide. Though a risky move, Earl Spackman would go on to purchase the entire Indiana Beach Peninsula during the Great Depression. It was a move that would ultimately pay off. The shoreline became home to the White Point Resort Hotel, cottages, a casino, dance pavilion, and the Ideal Beach Hotel. Due to the lake's great fishing, there were also several campgrounds, lodges, boat docks, and bait shops in the surrounding area. When big band music was at its peak popularity, the Schaefer Lake Ballroom was always a primary stop on the circuit of many well-known musicians. In 1945, Thomas Spackman, Earl's son, became the CEO of Ideal Beach. In 1952, the park's name would be changed to Indiana Beach. In the 1940s and 50s, the competition over vacation dollars in northern Indiana was quite fierce. Several nearby lakes also offered summer resort living. Indiana Beach went one step further in efforts to set themselves apart by expanding their offerings with a small amusement park. Initial attractions included a merry-go-round, ferris wheel, rollo plane, horseback riding, and a skating rink. The 1950s also saw the addition of Indiana Beach's first roller coaster, the Little Dipper. An Alan Herschel kiddie coaster, the Little Dipper operated into the 1970s before being removed. The Schaefer Queen paddleboat, which was launched in 1972, became an iconic landmark for Indiana Beach. The slogan, there's more to Indiana than corn, was born. Indiana Beach saw the addition of another roller coaster in 1971, the Galaxy, which operated until its removal in 2013. 
1984, a third roller coaster was added to the park, the Tiger Coaster. Relocated from Holiday Beach in Georgia, this classic Schwarzkopf Jetstar attraction still thrills guests to this day. By the late 1990s, the resort and theme park attracted around 700,000 visitors and brought in an estimated $50 million in revenue for the area. On May 27, 1994, Indiana Beach would open one of their signature wooden roller coasters, the Hoosier Hurricane. Built by Custom Coasters International, Hoosier Hurricane features a 98-foot first drop and reaches speeds of 51 miles per hour. The well-known Cornball Express, the park's second wooden roller coaster, would open on May 18, 2001. Also constructed by Custom Coasters International, the attraction stands 55 feet tall and reaches speeds of 45 miles per hour. In Cornball Express was ranked the 18th best wooden roller coaster in Amusement Today's Golden Ticket Awards. The coaster consistently remained in the top 40 of this category for several years. On June 6, 2002, Indiana Beach would go on to open yet another wooden roller coaster, the Lost Coaster of Superstition Mountain. The attraction would also be the last roller coaster Custom Coasters International would complete prior to bankruptcy. Lost Coaster of Superstition Mountain is quite the unique ride. Featuring an elevator lift, the ride winds throughout an enclosed mountain structure several times. The trains feature two cars with riders facing each other. Being able to ride forwards and backwards certainly entertains quite the unique experience. Prior to being home to Lost Coaster of Superstition Mountain, the mountain structure was used for a classic dark ride. In 2008, the Spackman family sold Indiana Beach and their two campgrounds to Morgan Recreation Vacations. Ultimately, this sale would lead to an overall decline of the park's upkeep and value. On July 5, 2008, Indiana Beach would open their first steel roller coaster since the 1980s. Featuring speeds of 41 miles per hour and two inversions, Steel Hog made its grand debut. Steel Hog is an SNS L Loco attraction. Since the installation of Steel Hog, Indiana Beach has only seen the addition of one other roller coaster, Dragon Wagon, in 2015. The small coaster, however, was removed in 2018. In 2015, Apex Parks purchased Indiana Beach. The new ownership brought life and vibrance back to the park, primarily investing in major improvements and upgrades. Though Indiana Beach was a profitable property for Apex Parks, their overall struggles caused the abrupt announcement nobody wanted to hear. On February 18, 2020, Indiana Beach was to be closed permanently. The announcement was a particularly huge blow to the surrounding area as it was a substantial generator of tourism revenue. In March 2020, White County officials agreed to offer $3 million to a new potential buyer after the sale is complete. In April 2020, a businessman from Chicago, Gene Staples, purchased Indiana Beach. Though COVID-19 is still a huge concern around the country, Indiana Beach opened back up to the public on June 27th. The park has posted several upgrades and ride refurbishments, additions of classic fan favorite eateries, and teasers on their social media accounts, which is a promising sign of things to come. Now featuring over 45 exciting attractions and unique roller coasters, Indiana Beach's beautiful setting makes it a recommended destination for all enthusiasts.
All right, we're going from the cornfields of Indiana to the smoky mountains of Tennessee. I'm hungry all of a sudden. I, do you smell the smell of like chicken and steak and onions and peppers being grilled on a huge like hibachi grill on a midway? Oh, not only that, I, I think I smell something very sugary oh, and yep, and yep. A, with a lot of dough and, uh, and I'm just cinnamon-y. melting in my seat. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and buy the icing cup so I have something to dip all that uh, sugar into. Oh, my God. I hope you're not driving while you're listening to this podcast because you probably already crashed. How about how about a, a, a pizza the size of your head? And that's a really big. I meant a know, slice of pizza. Of yeah, I meant a slice of pizza the size of your head because the whole pizza is the size of a person. A person yes. could crawl up uh, on the floor and be the size of the pizza that they have there. Oh, and did we also mention some of the best rides on earth? I, I think that uh, we forgot to mention that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's the perfect day. And. What a great segue as well to talk with Pete Owens, who's the Vice President of Marketing and Public Relations at Dollywood. We'll get a chance to really sit down with him, talk about the history of the park and why Dollywood honestly is so special. I mean, you have Clint and I over here drooling over food. That's just a small part of why Dollywood is so beloved in the industry, right? Uh, shows, rides, attractions, the beautiful landscape, the food, and my favorite part about the Dollywood experience is the staff. The top-notch people, they're always willing to please. It's a great environment to be in. So let's sit down with Pete Owens and talk all about it. Well, I'm very excited this month we get to talk with the Vice President of Marketing and Public Relations at Dollywood, Mr. Pete Owens. Pete, how's it going? I am great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. So for those who may not know and might just be living under a rock, what exactly is Dollywood? Well, Dollywood is um, Dolly Parton's um, theme park resort in the Great Smoky Mountains. So we were uh, created in 1986. We actually became Dollywood in uh, October, end of October 1985, opened May 3rd, 1986 uh, with the theme park. Uh, And then in 2001, expanded and added Dollywood Splash Country a water park and then added a cabins business that has um, luxury cabins in the Smokies that are part of our lodging uh, resort program. And then in 2015, built uh, Dollywood's Dreamore Resort and Spa, which uh, is adjacent to Dollywood Splash Country. And uh, it's a 300 room, uh, four star resort uh, in the Smokies. Uh, it's a gorgeous facility. And uh, and it's a great place to stay if you come to visit one of the parks. Um, we also own um, multiple theaters in the area. We have Dolly Parton Stampede, which is a, a dinner theater attraction that is really focused on um, you know really the the South and the West. So it's about Western expansion. Um, the storyline takes you through all of that, and it's a good-natured, uh, um, fun competition uh, dining experience. Uh, and then we also have another dinner theater attraction similar to that called Pirate's Voyage, 
which uh, think stampede only with pirates um, and uh, which is great it's a facility has uh, uh, two full-sized um, pirate ships that sit adjacent to one another in a dock and then a big dock area uh, and the crimson pirates and the sapphire pirates battle it out to win the treasure um, and then we own also uh, a dinner theater attraction that we purchased last year uh, from Fee Hedrick Entertainment called Hatfield McCoy Dinner Feud. Uh, we also own the uh, Smoky Mountain Opry, the Comedy Barn, uh, and a restaurant called uh, Frizzle's Chicken. So there's quite a lot here in, um, in the Smokies uh, that's part of Dolly's portfolio of businesses. All of this, of course, in addition to the fact that she's still an amazing performer and country music singer. Well, absolutely. I mean, and she's more and more relevant every day. I mean, and, and a movie producer and uh, uh, television producer. Um, she's done a lot of that work in the last several years with, uh, um, you know, first adding uh, music and serving as um, one of the producers for the Dumplin' movie that was on Netflix and then her Heartstrings uh, series that she did last year and hopefully we'll be doing some more of those in the future that are taking her songs and uh, bringing them to life um, in uh, stories that uh, you know fit the song itself may not be the way you thought of the story but it's a way that uh, it's a story that uh, um, that fits in her mind uh, and is a little more contemporary for some of those uh, songs. Um, she has a Christmas movie that's coming out this year on Netflix as well. And then she starred in and, and worked with us uh, on a Hallmark movie last year that was called Christmas at Dollywood and uh, just uh, uh, continues to crank out the music. She's had some really incredible um work in with duets that she's done recently with uh, for uh, for king and country and um and uh others that uh have really really done well uh and then released a song not too long ago about uh uh three weeks ago three to four weeks ago that uh was really about the pandemic and uh called uh, when things are good again and uh debuted in the top 10 on the country charts and in the top 20 in the contemporary charts. Um, and uh, it's just amazing. I mean, she is she is a machine. She continues <laughs> to, uh, to really crank it out. And if you think about, you know, the fact that she is uh, 76 years old, she is uh, she's she's quite a she, she's quite a force of nature. It really does show just how special of a place Dollywood is, not only just for your guests, but also for the community. So what exactly made you make the jump to work for Dolly Parton? So like, what sparked your interest in the amusement industry? Well, I mean, I was always, uh, I mean, I was always a kid that, uh, you know, that liked uh, amusement parks. You know, I didn't grow up in Ohio or Pennsylvania where, you know, there is a major park seemingly on every corner, but <laughs> it is, uh, you know, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. We had a park called Peony Park in Omaha that was a very small kind of picnic grove that had some, uh, some rides. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they had a couple of coasters that were there and uh the and as a kid loved that uh when they opened worlds of fun originally uh when the coffins opened it originally you know that kind of became uh, a vacation opportunity for us from omaha to drive down to kansas city and to be able to go to worlds of fun and sure. you know in its in in its infancy uh really kind of an amazing themed park frankly you know, themed after around the world in 80 days was really uh, had some great coasters there. Um, you know, when uh, you know, when you're looking at um, or when you have the opportunity as a kid in your hometown to only be able to ride basically repurposed, you know, carnival coasters um at a at a picton grove and then you're able to go down and ride the zambezi zinger and ride um you know rides like that at, at worlds of fun that was a that was an incredible experience um got to go to silver dollar city as a kid uh i'm old enough that back in those days there weren't a whole lot of rides at silver dollar city it was mostly you know it was mostly a craft community but there were uh there were still some neat ride attractions there. My favorite at the time, for those of, for those listeners of yours that were at Silver Dollar City in the '70s, um, they had a they had a ride very similar to, uh, you know, uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea uh, at uh, uh, at Disney called Rube Dugan's Diving Bell. That you that use now that I now that I know a reverse projection and you know the rubber walls and the whole you know the whole spraying water and the whole thing uh, and uh, was my favorite attraction at SDC at that time um, was went to Six Flags St Louis the year it opened and uh, was able to go uh, one other time when I was a kid and. And so really loved parks, but got into journalism, you know, as I grew up uh, and, and went to college. I was a film major in college and hard to find work uh, in Kansas doing movies. Um, <laughs> worked on a couple, but uh, uh, hard to find steady work. So went into, went into TV and landed in journalism and worked in, uh, worked uh, in television journalism, mainly uh, in the latter years in senior management. Um, and uh, my travels across the country landed me in Knoxville working at the ABC affiliate as the assistant news director um, and executive producer. And uh, uh, after about five years, four and a half years at, the, at that um, station, um, you know, I was at a point where I needed to figure out what it was, what I needed to do. And my thought was I was just gonna move to another TV job, had an opportunity to move home to Omaha. Um, my wife was like, no, let's, you know, I like it here. <laughs> um, and so let's see what other things we can do. And there's a lady that works with me named Ellen Liston, who at the time was the publicist for Dollywood. And uh, she suggested that um, I should apply. And uh, we kind of talked about it over about a four or five month period. And then finally I did apply and uh, it was a hard decision to leave TV, but 
this seem like a great family company and a great new challenge. And um, it has been. I mean, I've worked here for 20 years now. Uh, 20, it's my 21st season. And Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, that's it's. Uh, well, as you know, we have lots of folks that work for our company that, uh, you know, all of the, the Hirsch and Family Entertainment companies that have been around for a long time. I mean, we're a lot of us are long tenured folks and uh, it's been a uh, seen a lot of stuff happen. I mean, you know, um, I you, you at when you ask me what Dollywood's about, I mean, other than the park itself, I've opened everything else that I talked about. And, uh, and that includes, you know, opened and closed a stampede in Orlando. Um, you know, I was the one that suggested originally, um, and I'm glad that we, um, we went through and the board finally agreed with me to change the name of stampede a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, have kind of managed through all of those changes. So it's been really exciting. I mean, you know, and the and the more and more I've gotten involved in the industry through the years, you know, the the uh, uh, I guess people don't really understand if they're not in it just how dynamic the uh, our industry really is and how amazing um, the people are. I love the owners of family parks um and uh and what they bring to the industry and how innovative that they have been through the years and certainly jack and pete hershen are among those you kind of forget that don't you like i think a lot of people actually forget that that hershen and and dollywood and they're it's still a family-owned company it's not traded on the stock market right it's still privately owned and there's there is a difference you can definitely tell well and the family has no intention ever to sell it so it is a, uh, I mean, I would say it's very much like the Knobles. I mean, you know, they don't, they never have an intention to sell their company. Uh, I think that the family parks that you're seeing that are doing that or are closing is just, they simply don't have any more family that are capable or are willing to be able to run the business. Because I think, you know, as you can appreciate, this is a hard business. I mean, in the summertime, this is a, I mean, for us, I mean, we're open 10 months a year. So, um, and, you know, eventually we'll probably be open, you know, 12 months a year, you know, you know, when, whenever that happens, but, you know, this is a 24 hour a day business and, uh, and that's a lot. Um, I mean, my, uh, the, the, the example that I always use is, um, at, uh, at World of Wonderland, um, uh, out in Amarillo, I mean, Paul and Paula and their family, they basically move into a house on the property. Yes, uh, they for do. The operating, for the operating season, so that they are there 24 hours a day. And that's, that's hard, and it's hard to find people who want to work that hard, frankly. 
No, you're spot on there too. It's first of all, it's crazy because you just see the house. It's just right there. And they got the little driveway that pulls right up to it. It's, it's kind of cool. If you ever thought, Hey, I wanted to live in an amusement park, but there is the other side of that, which is you're going to be working your tail off because you're never going to be closing. Yeah. You you can never turn it off. You're always on stage no matter what. And when you're in a small town like that, everyone knows who you are too. So you've, you've got to be constantly on and it is, it's, I mean, I can speak from experience too. It's not easy, but boy, the reward of seeing those people smile as they're leaving your park, that really makes up for it. And, and knowing that you're, that your park is, is so well respected and such a pillar of your community makes it all worth it. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that is what you said there is exactly right. You wonder, you know, what was the tipping point for me to decide to go, um, and really the former president of the Dollywood company is a guy named Ken Bell. And Ken was the president of the Dollywood company from, um, 1985 until, uh, he retired in uh, 2012. And, um, when I was talking with him, when I was trying to decide what I was going to do, he basically said, you know what, no matter the kind of day, if it's a bad day and, you know, I'm, you know, dealing with numbers or there's something else that's going on, all I've got to do is go out and walk down, you know, an RK show street, um, but, you know, down the midway and uh, listen to people laugh and, and and uh, and be happy and all of that and know that I had a little something to do with that. Um, and I reflected upon that and because I was in journalism, you know, I pretty much am in the misery business and, uh, <laughs> in journalism. And and I said to my wife at the time, I, at the time, I said to my wife, I should say it that way, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that um, it'd be nice to be in the joy business for a while and to see how that is. And it's been spectacular. I mean, I could not be any happier, um, you know, uh, and, and I would say that, you know, my intent would be to remain in the joy business for as long as, as long as I possibly can. So that's a great, um, it's just great business. You can see that with the tenure that you have in the company, the, not just yourself, but so many others who work for, for Dollywood, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, that's unheard of in today's world. And that speaks a lot about how the companies run and, and how they treat their employees. So, I mean, a massive kudos to, to everyone there for creating such a great environment to not only work in, but clearly to thrive in. Well, I mean, we, we think so. We'd like to be a great place to work for great people. Uh, I mean, that's a slogan, but definitely the truth. Um, you know, we're a, uh, we're uh, a love works business. So Joel Mamby introduced that, uh, you know, kind of officially uh, to the world about 10 years ago. But that is uh, how Jack and Pete were running the business you know, from the mid 1950s mm-hmm. until Joel did that. And, uh, you know, as I said, we're a golden rule company. I mean, we use first Corinthians, um, to, uh, you know, the description of, of what love is. Um, and we're all gold as managers. Um, we're gold on how well we live up to those attributes. And that's a different look at the world. 
Um, and, you know, I would tell you that there's a greater chance that you've got somebody that is really good at the numbers, but not good at the softer stuff, leaving the company than you would somebody that is really good, uh, you know, the other way around. So really good at the, at the softer stuff. We can teach you the number stuff mm-hmm. and we can help you with that, but it's much more important of, uh, of how you manage and how you take care of people. And, you know, I think folks like, you know, Craig Ross is the president of the Hollywood company now. I mean, his experience was started at King's Entertainment and then went to Paramount and then, you know, worked, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think he ever made it actually to work to Cedar Fair, but I think he left to go work for Hershen, uh, kind of in that transition during the sale. Um, and, you know, we have uh, Eugene Naughton joined us from the Six Flags organization um, in uh, at the end of October. Uh, and, you know, he started working for Paramount and worked at, has worked at Flags, worked at Flags for a long time. Uh, and I think that, you know, they were drawn here because of the culture. Um, and, you know, they are, I mean, Craig's been, Craig's been at Dollywood since 2011. And uh, I think, you know, his, um, you know, his, his love of the, uh, of the company and his love of the park is, you know, all culturally related. How exactly did you find out about Ace? I'm assuming it was probably one of your, the first rides that you opened, probably a Tennessee tornado where you were like, uh, oh, there are the folks out there that really love roller coasters. So um, our fo- there were folks in the area that were part of the American Coaster Enthusiasts, obviously, and they did. Tornado is actually the only uh, major ride on the park uh, I guess Tornado and Daredevil Falls are the only two major rides that I didn't open. They were right before me. So Ellen Liston opened them when she was here the first time. Uh, and then she went away to Children's Hospital and then I brought her back. And so she's working on my team again. But the, uh, um, but yeah, so uh, Ace came in and helped the opening of Tennessee Tornado. Um, and you know, that's a ride that we continue to be extremely proud of. I mean, it's really the last arrow and is the, uh, uh, I think the smoothest of that, of that variety of, of coaster. Um, you know, it's a, uh, um, I mean, just an amazing ride. I just wish they would have, you know, it was originally designed to be longer if your folks uh, don't know that. Uh, and I really wish we could have actually finished the design, but I'm not sure the ride would have the kind of punch that it actually does have if they did extend the ride out to the length that it was originally going to be. So I don't know, Pete, if you can hear that, but that's a bunch, thousands of keyboards at once trying to look up what the actual layout was supposed to be on Tennessee (laughs) Tornado right now at this very moment. Well, the roller coaster museum actually has the wire model and the pin model on uh, phone core of what uh, they designed originally. 
So yeah. we're going to have to get into that then, obviously. So, yeah, it's it's that would be uh, it's it's an ugly model. I have to <laughs> tell you, it's an ugly model, but it is a uh, but it gives you an idea of I think it's great in the process. And as we go through, you know, from they went to you know, from the beginnings of when they were just doing hard drawings to when they actually went into AutoCAD and all of that, I think it's a great piece to be able to show folks transition transitionally uh in the in the museum of of how the designs changed but um you know i mean i think it's a great ride and, and it's one that we're really really proud of but uh you should be. It, it really is spectacular. And you're right. It does have quite a punch to it, but not the type of punch that, you know, hits your head. It's the just it's just got a great layout and it's unique and it's different. Yeah, no, that uh, I mean, that that loop, the first loop is 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 pretty amazing. I mean, you know, you're going uh, positive four G's to negative four G's to positive four G's in one loop. And then you go around to those two spiral loops that are on the backside and you know the ride's over but i mean you hit 70 miles an hour uh during that short duration of the ride um you know and if we had gone left instead of right coming out of the spiral loops and you had a couple of more inversions we would have burned off a whole lot of speed by the time you got into the brick run so um those are those folks that remember when we actually had uh, we did when we before we installed the magnetic brakes, um, you know, the stop coming into the brake run with the amount of power that we had coming into the brake run was that was quite an experience. Um, and so uh, it was uh, it just kind of shows what the inertia level was on that ride uh, during that time period. But my first experience with Ace was um, in. Uh, in 2003 when we first started uh the discussions uh regarding uh um thunderhead and what we were going to do uh, gci had just built uh for hershen uh the ozark wildcat and uh you know which was a great you know little brother to thunderhead um and uh the uh when we started to get ready to uh to finish that particular attraction and then to get into to opening it um we really started uh, uh quite a number of different conversations uh i became uh good friends with carol sanderson and with um some members of the ec during that time period uh my friend jeffrey siebert got me in in uh in contact with some folks about that and uh so we were able to um, put together uh, i think the first event we did was a spring con so i don't remember what we what what we called it at that time or what ace called it at that time but that's in essence what it was and uh, i had a really really nice turnout um and folks were impressed with thunderhead as they should be uh and if you haven't been on it lately with the retracking we've been doing it's freaking amazing the way that it's <laughs> it's riding right now well it always was really good so now it's just better oh it's it is back to first season quality smoothness and uh, and run it's really really good uh, I'm hearing more keyboards now from people trying to find flights, I think. Well, it is the, uh, well, we're using, they're, they're doing the, all of the, 
all the track wood that we're replacing, they're using that APE or EPE wood. So really, really dense, really, really stable. And uh, it's uh, it really is, um, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I have to tell you, we've still got a little bit of work left to do uh, mm-hmm. as we go around the circuit, but uh, what's been done so far is really a huge, is really a huge change. Uh, so that was really the first bit. And then um, we uh, started to do a couple of regional events and we continue to do those Smoky Mountain Coaster Fest being the one that we have done the longest. Uh, and we started not long after that also doing Thrills in the Hills, which is our park event, uh, which uh, is coming up here pretty shortly. And, uh, you know, the idea was to try to, um, you know, really show the park off in a way that uh, historically we never had before to, to folks that have a love of, of theme parks. And, you know, um, I, I learned, uh, I mean, some of your younger members may not remember this, but if you contextualize what this is in regard to the history of ACE, um, and, you know, one of my very good friends is Richard Munch. So, um, you know, I get it. I, I have a really good, clear um, history of, of how ACE was formed and, and, and how that has, you know, progressed through the years. But when Carol, this is during the time that Carol was president, and this is when we built Thunderhead, this was immediately after the Holiday World accident. So that'll give you a little context as to what was going on. And I think during that time, our embracing of the American coaster enthusiasts was kind of anomalous in the industry um, because of, of you know, what had happened uh, at Holiday World and, uh, and really what kind of a bad rap that Ace had received uh, unwarranted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I think we kind of grew together in regard to, to, uh, to coming back and, uh, you know, I cherish the relationships that I have with, uh, friends of mine that are, that are, that are an ACE. I mean, some of my uh, best friends, not only in the industry, but just best, fr- best friends period are ACE members. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, we love a lot of the same things. So it's, uh, and so that's a cool, that's a good, cool deal. You mentioned earlier a bit about the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. What made you get involved with them and that organization? So in, uh, talked about in 04 when we started with Thunderhead and, and, uh, and started to get involved with ACE at the end of 03 and into 04 and 05 the um, um, around that same time period 2005 is the first time I also went to Golden Tickets so I was um, you know Gary and I knew each other through um, just him being a journalist and and uh, you know Gary and I really became friends through uh, Golden Tickets and NIAPA and other things and uh, so when Gary, um, you know, started to look at what the opportunity would be to reconstitute the National Roller Coaster Museum and reincorporate, 
um, you know, there were folks that were involved in the industry that he really wanted to get involved. And so Gary reached out to me and said, um, you know, hey, would you be interested in being on this board? Um, and, you know, I thought that sounds pretty cool. I mean, that's, uh, you know, not everybody can say that, you know, their nonprofit board that they're on is for National Roller Coaster Museum. So yes. that's kind of a neat, that's kind of a neat opportunity. And, you know, that's also during the same time period that, you know, we had some parks that were going away and uh, there were things that were getting uh, torn down. I mean, it's, uh, if you want to uh, put this in context in regard to time, it would be, uh, we reconstituted shortly before or right around the time of Katrina. So we lost Six Flags New Orleans. Uh, there was still things going on with Geauga Lake. Um, there were uh, other parks that were, uh, you know, quite a number of rides that were out there that were standing but not operating. And, you know, the opportunity was what could we start to put together and what could get moved. So there was quite a lot of stuff that was moved out to Plainview before I became involved with the museum itself. And then uh, and folks say, well, why Plainview? Plainview's in Western Texas and climate is outstanding to be able to preserve things, but it's also where Larson Manufacturing is. That is uh, the manufacturer of the fireballs and flying scooters and Tilt-A-Whirl. That's where their headquarters is. Quite literally next door. Right. And Jeff Novotny was uh, a board member. Um, And so he um, has a very deep, deep passion in protecting the legacy of the industry. And so he... uh, um rented some locations for us to be able to store some things and um right when i was brought on to the board the idea was how do we consolidate all of this into one building and so we started the process of of building a building and when we started that process we also kind of we're talking about a lot of other ways to be able to do this uh, whether it was a mobile exhibit or an exhibit that we could put in parks. And we were looking for places around the country to be able to do this. And, you know, we talked to other um, theme park chains. Uh, could we put it in their park? Could we put a museum space in their park? And we did have some uh, interest. Uh, but then, uh, as happens in our industry, there were some personnel changes. Uh, at various uh, companies, uh, whether it was as high as a CEO or whether it was just a park president. Um, And, you know, the situation was it could sit and not, uh, we could sit and do nothing or we could really start the acquisition process and try to get as much of this hardware and information and designs and marketing materials and all of this history, could we start collecting it and then could we figure it out and figure out a way to be able to build a building? And when you have a benefactor like Jeff that basically uses the labor of his company as a donation 
uh, provided us, deeded us land to the uh, uh, to where the museum building is now and uh, really worked to build out what it is we have now. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's just a straight up blessing because honestly, uh, if, if that were not the case, um, a lot of this stuff would still be in people's garages or would have been thrown away because some of the members, the ACE members that donated their collections to the museum, uh, when they passed away, their families just would have, you know, would have gone into would have gone into a tip instead of going into uh, the museum. Um, and so that we really started with a single building, and uh, we uh, did the exhibit at Dollywood for CoasterCon in 2012, uh, and then we kept it for our anniversary as well, and uh, we're able to. Uh, uh, keep that at Dollywood for two seasons. Um, and uh, by that time, our initial building was done. And then through a donation from Cliffs Amusement Park, we were able to build on to that building uh, for more space. And then from a donation from the Knoble family, we were able to add some uh, conditioned space for our paper archives and our videotapes and those kind of things. Um, and then after the unfortunate and untimely death of Mark Moore, who was one of the founding members of the reconstituted museum board, uh, founder of Euromet, um, uh, we have been able to build a building that is um, amazing in regard to size and scope. But the most important thing is we're collecting it, we're preserving it, and it'll be here for posterity because of the work that these folks are doing. I could not have said it any better. And having the opportunity to go out there recently and see the progress on it from the last West Texas Roundup, the facility has grown immensely. And photos really don't do it justice, I don't think, in terms of just the size and scope of what this facility is going to be and the eventual plans on being able to expand the archiving section because the current archive section is nearly completely full. But at the same time, still having acquisitions coming in because rides eventually, you know, they wear down, they in the, you reach the end of their service life. Yeah, it's going to be self-sustaining at some point, and it's really exciting to watch it happen. And really, everyone should have an opportunity to thank everyone on the NRCMA board for their efforts, because they're not getting paid for this. You're doing it for a love of the industry and to make sure that that history is consistently preserved for other generations to learn, understand and have fun with. Right, exactly. And I'll tell you, the other person that that really deserves a lot of props is is Jeff. Jeff's son, Hunter. Uh, Hunter Novotny now is, um, I mean, I think we'll, we'll take over Larson. We're blessed with the fact that he grew up in the industry. He loves the industry and he has the same passion as his dad does in regard to the museum and the preservation of, of uh, all of these artifacts it's not a situation where you know there are some people that that uh collect that are obsessive about the collection being you know they want to protect their collection that's not the way these guys are at all i mean they want to protect it and preserve it 
they want to share it with the world and we're trying to find out a way to do that but that's not a cheap date so <laughs> you know you just you just google some stories about private museums that are being built and how much money that is and uh you know these are foundations that are generating you know five ten million dollar projects and the industry has supported this and you know i think when it's all done you know this building is going to end up being you know a tenth of what that cost was to be able to do uh um you know to 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 have something that the industry uh can call their own and there's just so many neat things that they've done i mean you know the there's a mezzanine level and all the wood on the mezzanine level is coming from uh, uh from ride wood and uh you know the 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 steel that we're using in certain areas are actually have actually come from uh coasters i mean it's amazing to see what we've been able to repurpose in that regard uh and then what the displays are i mean those are displays that that uh that hunter and jeff and their team at larson have been able to put together for us whether it's something like you know disaster transport in a in one of those half pipes that's at an angle or you know something as simple as you know the blazing fury car firing the whole car that they have that's on track or you know the probably the first big acquisition that we that we were able to receive uh when i first joined the board was uh the big bad wolf and uh the display of the suspended big bad wolf car on track um you know really just just amazing with the work that they've been able to do and you know since that time um you know with the matterhorn car that we have and the relationship that tom sheehan's been able to build with us with disney with an opportunity to do that now disney as you've also noticed that they've figured out that they can make some pretty serious cash if they sell them um and uh and so those are those those conversations are a little bit different now but yes. the uh <laughs> because we would have loved frankly to have a peter pan car um and when they, uh, but they auctioned all their Peter Pan cars off, except for the one that they kept in their own archives. Uh, for, at least that's my understanding. And, uh, but those are things that we, we keep our eye out. And, you know, you've got folks that are listening to this and saying, but that's not a coaster. Um, but well. it is, <laughs> but it's a huge part of the industry. I mean, the yes. greatest thing about ACE is, is that it, they are, about being coaster enthusiasts but really aren't you your theme park enthusiasts you're enthusiasts about the amusement industry and so you know that could be some of you may also be you know uh you may be you also may be into you know carnival uh history you may be into circus history you may be into um sideshow history you know not all of those things are represented in the museum but they wouldn't necessarily be excluded because it's all part of the it's all part of the history of the amusement industry 
Right. You had to start somewhere. And obviously, you need to be able to tell the entire story. And one of the stories I think, and you brought this up, and I'm so glad you did, that a lot of people miss is for all the guff and all the crap, honestly, that gets thrown at Larson because of their super loops and some, you know, chains calling them coasters, some chains not. You get a lot of guff online about that. But for all of that guff, y'all should really be thanking them for the amount and contribution they've done to get this museum up where it's at. The incredible attention to detail that Pete was alluding to with the mezzanine wood, with some of these support structures, which are made of actual coaster track in some cases. It is beyond creative. And, you know, the Novotnys really deserve a lot more credit, I think, than, than they get online for what they're doing to help preserve the industry and really give us as fans an opportunity to celebrate that. Thanks. I mean, that's exactly right. Thanks for saying that. But just heading back to your park uh, as we're sort of wrapping up here, we're going through a very interesting time, to say the least. Things are definitely not what they used to be. Uh, But your park has been absolutely lauded for its precautions and its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you go into a bit more detail about what exactly you all are doing to protect your guests and most importantly, to make them feel safe to come back and enjoy the parks again? I'd be happy to. I mean, you know, it's a uh, I mean, it's a difficult thing, right? I mean, the last time there was a pandemic like this, you know, it was it was uh, in the early 1900s. So there's not a whole lot of think about all the things that have changed over the last 110 years. Uh, There was no real manual for how to do this. You know, we basically, uh, during the time that, uh, from the time we closed, we opened one day, which we opened March 13th, Friday the 13th, the pass holders. And we closed at the end of that day based on what was happening with the pandemic. And we um, started working immediately with uh, partners we had locally with uh, Covenant Health that um, they provide an epidemiologist to us that we could had basically his cell phone number and could call and ask him questions on how we should handle things um, to CDC, to the state. And we created a set of operational guidelines that include more than 700 operational changes uh, in order to follow CDC guidelines that are all based on social distancing. You know, we were state mandated to reduce the amount of capacity we had. And it was really hard for the state to look at us, and I'm sure that this is happening in a lot of states. In a theme park environment, you're not only, you know, an outdoor venue, you're also you know, you also have theaters and you have restaurants and you have stores and you have, um, you know, in some cases, manufacturing or maintenance facilities and you have office facilities and you have money handling facilities and you have all of these different um, categories that are covered under various different codes based on these reopening plans that really were predicated by what the president and the vice president brought out early on in the reopening guide of what was going to happen. 
So we built our plan and we shared it with the state of Tennessee and that helped guide the creation of the Tennessee Pledge that most all of the businesses here are supposed to be following. The key components to it are, you know, the reduced capacity is number one. Number two is, you know, the the monitoring of not only folks that work with you, so your staff, but also your guests as to uh, health screening and temperature taking. A mask wearing is recommended, but uh, within the industry, you know, really it was mandated by all of the theme park companies that that was really a non-negotiable in order to stop the spread of the virus. Increased social distancing. So all of that came together. Uh, we put in initially a reservation system, uh, primarily for our season pass holders and then date specific ticketing, um, which um, have, uh, we've, kind of modified as we've gone through this process. Um, and uh, we have tried to make it as easy on the, uh, on the guest as we can. But, you know, the, the long and short of it is, if you're gonna come to Dollywood, you're gonna go to the website, you're gonna see whether or not it's a green day, a yellow day, or a red day based on our capacity. If it's a Greendale or a yellow day, you really don't need reservations. Uh, we recommend them so that we know that you're coming. They're not recommend, I mean, they're not required, but if you get to a red day, they are required. And basically that's all predicated on a percentage of attendance based on what the government says we can do. You're gonna be given a uh, wristband that shows that you've been screened. That same process goes on for every single employee before they go into work you ride in we're gonna remind you as you come in on the tram that you're required to wear a mask that there are lots of areas on the park six in fact that you can go and take your mask off to rest and if you're eating under three or on a high thrill attraction they're not required so um, we try to make that as easy as possible, but we're asking people to be responsible so that they take care of themselves and they take care of other folks. You'll notice that there are about 6,500 signs and decals that have been added to the park. There are 350 hand sanitizer or new wash sinks that have been added to the park. So we've added actual sinks in between restrooms that if you wanna wash your hands with soap and water, instead of just using hand sanitizer, there are those opportunities to be able to do that. Um, at the rest areas that we have, we have an ambassador group that works those, that encourages folks to wear masks around those areas, but then helps you in the areas where you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, and then we have folks that roam the park that uh, encourage folks to wear to wear their masks. You know, we have been lauded by uh, folks on TripAdvisor that you know we have a, a pretty a pretty good combination of things that we've been able to do to help folks. It's as normal, and I use that in air quotes, an experience as it possibly can be in the midst of a global pandemic that had in the United States yesterday, 52,000 new cases. Um, and you kind of become uh, numb to those numbers after a while, don't you? Well, it's just one of those things, honestly, that um, 
when you look at it, um, you know, I'm a libertarian, I'm a, hey, leave me alone kind of guy. But I'll tell you that when you hear numbers like that, and you have people that you know, frankly, people that I know that were in, in the ACE community that have passed away from COVID, um, it's something that I take seriously. And uh, I would like to go out and do whatever I want to do. But when I go out and do it and I go to the grocery store, or I go to, you know, Walmart or I go wherever, you know, we wear masks and we, ha and we use hand sanitizer. And I think that's just a responsible thing to do. And that's all we're asking people to do is be responsible. Uh, and unfortunately, there are a lot of folks that are not real responsible. And we just need to manage those particular things. But I think we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, I can't tell you just an overall standpoint from what I'm seeing in the industry is that the early adopters have come out and they're, and they're enjoying themselves. But there are still a lot of folks that are concerned and skeptical and they're not traveling. And we think that that will probably go away when there is a vaccine. But, you know, we intend to stay open and uh, continue to operate at the level in which we're operating. And, you know, we have had, you know, folks from other jurisdictions come and tour the facility and, and see what we're doing folks from other facilities, frankly, that have come in to see what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, uh, you know, we're trying to be as successful as we possibly can, but I mean, you know, um, it's hard. I mean, there, as I said, there's no playbook for this. No, but I think with all things considered and with the state of everything being in such constant flux, sometimes on an hourly basis in some cases, I think everyone at Dollywood has, has taken it you know, as, as best they can and have really made the best out of this situation to give us all at least something to look forward to this summer and, and something where it might distract us just a little bit from what's going on, while at the same time reminding us that something is happening here and we all need to take it really seriously so that we can go back to having fun whenever we want without having you know these masks or other situations like that. So I, I certainly you can only speak for myself, but certainly applaud you and, and all the efforts that for the Dollywood team for doing what you've been able to do with given the time and resources to do that. So uh, thank you. Seriously. Well, we appreciate it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's been one of the more challenging things that we've had to, that we've had to, to deal with. But, you know, we feel we're doing the right thing and we're going to continue to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Mr. I can't thank you enough. Pete Owens, thank you again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to visiting your park, hopefully sometime soon. Thanks, Chris. That is Pete Owens, the vice president of marketing and public relations at Dollywood. And, and okay, I, as we're connected, I actually can see what Chris is doing. And do you have a giant piece of apple pie over there? Because if you have a giant piece of apple pie over there, I'm going to be really upset. Okay. Well, maybe. Oh, my God. Okay. 
Well, Clint, I can see why you wanted him to be one of your road trip buddies uh, in that interview, because my goodness, Pete is just the best. He's so much fun to talk with. And we had so much fun in that interview that we could not contain Pete to just one interview segment. We had to give him bonus content Woo! on the ACE website. Bonus so content! If you want to check it out, just log into your ACE account on aceonline.org and then click on podcast and you will find all that additional content as well as additional content from other shows that you may have missed. Well, time flies when you're having fun, which means it is time to wrap up this Ride With Us podcast. Chris, wow, what an amazing journey. It, you know, it's been one year now since we've actually debuted the podcast. And yeah, it's incredible where it's taken us. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes in the next couple of years. It, it, it's going to be fun. You know what we really should do uh, like three years from now or maybe on our fifth year anniversary is talk about all of the things that happened before the podcast even had its first episode. From name changes to staffing to all of the fun stuff that we got to do behind the scenes for the months leading up to our first episode episode and i can't believe it's already been a year i mean it is absolutely crazy that we're hitting that mark i know it, it's kind of shocking but at the same time sort of feels just about right you know there you go so uh, i would like to thank our whole ace uh, team that helps us with this podcast because it's not just me and chris we got a whole team of people who are helping out behind the scenes to make all of this happen want to thank you guys because without you guys listening and messaging us and emailing us uh it wouldn't even be worth it because we would think we're just talking to ourselves right right yeah so make sure you email us that email address is podcast at aceonline.org all right well until next time i'm clint novak and I'm Chris Roberry, and make sure everyone enjoy the ride. Woo! See you guys later. Ride With Us is volunteer produced by the American Coaster Enthusiasts. ACE is a registered 501c3 charitable organization founded for the preservation and enjoyment of roller coasters around the world. Visit aceonline.org for more information.